You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. This episode dives into the way that yoga practice helps you come to a place of true self-acceptance of your body and moving into the feeling of being comfortable in your own skin. This is such an important journey for each of us to take in life. And I hope you find a little bit of inspiration to keep getting on your mat and putting in the work of the spiritual journey. For everyone who's listening, remember my brand new book, Get Your Yoga On, is available for pre-order now. This is a truly inclusive, accessible entry into the yoga practice with valuable tools for teachers and students of all different levels. So head on over to your favorite bookseller and check it out. As we begin to practice, one of the great gifts of practice is meeting your body. And what I mean by meeting the body is that you become friends with your body. This meeting of the body is such an important part of the journey of yoga that we take it for granted after we've been practicing for some time. You know, all of these sensations that arise in the field of the body that we feel moment by moment, this in and of itself is to a large degree, the blessing that comes from practice. When we talk about embodiment coming into the body, this is what asana is meant to be there for, to bring you back into the body. We spend so much time outside of the body. What I mean by that is we dissociate, we disembody, we run away from the sensations, we run away from our bodies. We lack the training to actually be inside of the body. Then we come in to do yoga. Why so many people come to yoga? Well, so many different reasons people come to the practice, but usually the root at some level is connected to a feeling, a yearning for something deeper, some deeper truth. There's some kind of a feeling, an angst, an irresolution, some kind of a, a feeling of, you know, inner discomfort, inner misalignment, inner chaos. It might not even be identified. There may be this feeling of searching, of questing in one way or another. And we come to the practice, whether that questing, whether that searching is physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual. We come in and we're looking for somehow answers. We don't know really what we're going to get, but we have seen and we get the feeling. There's a feeling in the body when you're around people that have been practicing yoga for a long time. There's a feeling, and it's a feeling of ease inside of the body. You might not know, and many people don't actually when they start practicing yoga, that what you're actually looking for is is that same sense of ease. Traditionally, this is called being at home in your own skin. And if we feel uncomfortable in our skin, if we're uncomfortable in the body, there's no escape from that anywhere on this planet earth, even crossing over to the other side. is not the escape from that sensation. If we're not comfortable in our own skin, then there'll be no peace anywhere we go. People travel over the world, not now, but at some moment used to travel all over the world 
to try to find the perfect place where they can finally be at peace. They don't like one city, change jobs, move to another city, don't like that city anymore, move to another city, don't like that city anymore, move to another city, don't like that city anymore, move to another country, don't like that country anymore, move to some other country. Never you can find a place on the earth that you can escape yourself. You can travel to the most beautiful, remote, distant parts of the world. And if you find peace and quiet there, it's because you brought that within yourself. If you travel to the most distant, remote part of the world, you will bring whatever you have inside of yourself with you. So when you're around someone that's comfortable in their own skin, that's just comfortable in how they are, that's friends with their bodies, something in you picks up on that and sort of says, I don't know what that is, but you know, I want that too. You may even not be able to articulate that, but it's this feeling of coming to the yoga practice and you are around somebody in whose presence you feel at ease. You're around someone in whose presence you feel a bit of what they feel. This is a natural human potentiality. So inside of our brains, we have what's called mirror neurons. Mirror as in like looking in the mirror. And what mirror neurons do is that they mirror the neurological state or the emotional state of somebody who is close to you. You have that potential. When you open yourself up to someone, your mirror neurons will fire at the same emotional height and frequency as the person that you are mirroring. This often happens in intimate relationships. You know, when someone you really, really love, you feel what they're feeling and share the highs and the lows. Now, when you're around someone whom you trust, maybe the yoga teacher or your other yoga practitioners, and your mirror neurons are picking up on a new vibration, something that you haven't felt before, something that you feel, oh, this, this is, I want more of that. I don't know what it is. Then you, you know, we, it keeps you inspired to practice and it keeps you inspired to keep coming back. Now, the important thing to understand is that that teacher that, rep, that holds that space represents a pathway for you to experience that within yourself. The mistake that many students make, myself included, I've made this mistake, is to transfer all of the potentiality to experience that state of being comfortable in your own skin to that human being who is experiencing that themselves. That potential exists within you. If your mirror neurons were able to mirror that state of embodiment, that state of being at home in your own skin, then you have that potential within yourself. So now the tool of yoga is there to teach you how to be so comfortable with yourself, with your thoughts, with your body, with all of your successes and all of your failures, with all of the happiness that's inside of your body and all of the pain. To be that comfortable with it all, that potential exists within you. Then you have to walk the path. It may take years of consistent practice before that path and potential is open for you. What does it mean to be at home in your own skin? Why would you ever feel you know, discomfort in this gift of the body? First of all, again, we have this training in our very much Western world, you know, the, in the European and North American worlds that really kind of worship at the altar of intellect. Everybody knows what I mean by worshiping at the altar of intellect. It's like we actually, I, I, it, it, in the United States right now, I wish that um, some people in positions of power would worship a little bit at the altar of intellect a little bit more right now. So I should say we used to 
have, uh, you know, and when, I, when we still do in certain parts of the country in the U.S. here, where people really place importance on science and reason and logic, which are all kind of realms of the mind. We place achievement in terms of higher education, in terms of what we can do very much with our minds. And then what happens is that we end up uh, being trained to walk around as kind of a giant brain being carried around on you know, this annoying stick that we have to dress up in strange looking clothes that we're never really that happy with. And we place so much emphasis on this uh, channel of the brain uh, that we lack this ability to be comfortable in the body. And now when we think about that, we come into the yoga practice and then we're asked to go back into the body, feel, feel this different part, feel this different part. As a yoga teacher for many years, I can tell that many people come to the practice like I did with a feeling of being like a foreigner inside of your body. And this is an expression that I've learned to call body foreign. This means that when you started the practice, I was like this in the beginning, that you're asked to feel the hip joint and you're like, yeah. I mean, I know I have one. Uh, that's what they said in biology. We have hip joints. I definitely have one. And then, you know, when you're asked to feel how your shoulder is rotating this way and rotating that way, you're like, oh my God, this is just so sensitive, this yoga stuff. I really, you know, I'm not, I don't really know about this. Or I remember the, the one of the clearest expressions of this when I first started practicing, there was this guy who said something like, oh, I really feel that my liver was really stressed by what I ate yesterday. I just remember putting my hands on my head and thinking like, these yoga people are nuts. You know, like they're there, like feeling their liver. Never, I don't want to feel my liver, like ever. I really want my liver to just do its business. I was kind of moderately grossed out by that. You know, like thinking about it, like my liver, it has like feelings. It needs to talk to me about things like, ew. And then, you know, he was really just like, no, I really feel it. I ate some things with a lot of heavy metals. And I was like, oh, this is too much. Like, I just really am feeling good that, you know, I'm not partying right now. And this guy's feeling his liver. So after, you know, but, but this is this idea of embodiment. You can, after years of practice, become so sensitive to the, the organ balance in the body that you can feel when your organ system is off balance. You can begin to feel when your body not only needs rest, but needs extra rest. You can feel when your body not only needs water to maintain itself, but needs extra water to heal. You can tune into this level of heightened sensitivity but it requires a deep feeling of wholeness, a deep feeling of, again, being at home, deeply at home in your own skin. So what does that actually mean? If we take the idea that is presented to us in the traditional teachings, you are not your body. You have a body, but you're not your body. Okay, well, who am I then if I'm not my body? We spend so many years. I am this body. I am this. I am that. But if now you come into the spiritual path, you are not your body. Okay, well, so what am I then if I'm not my body? Okay, am I my thoughts? So I'm not my thoughts. Let me go back to the temple of the intellect. Well, I'm not my body, I'm my thoughts. No, then the teaching says, you are not your thoughts either. You're not your thoughts. Okay, well, I'm not my thoughts. Well, am I my emotions? Because I feel a lot. Maybe I could be my happiness and my sadness. And sometimes emotions are really bigger than everything else. Sometimes emotions can drown out thoughts for better or worse. Sometimes emotions can drown out feeling in the body for better or worse. No, you're not your emotions either. So not the mind, not the emotions, not the body, not the achievements, not what you've done, 
nothing in the material world. Okay, well, what am I? What am I? You know, I think that this is a question each of you has to answer. And this is the central quest that is the journey of yoga. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Am I my body? If you can answer that question, not intellectually, not because I said it or because you read it in an, an ancient scripture, if you can really know for the fact I am not my body, this detachment of identity allows you the pathway to become friends with your body. If you are the body, of course there's suffering. This is a temporary thing. It comes and goes. Look at what the body every day, you know, changing, changing, changing. What did you do? It's a constant quest of yoga practitioners. What can I do to make my body do what I want it to do? You know, if I, we go on the, and especially in the beginning of the practice, we go on these little quests of, you know, if I eat this particular thing, will I be able to jump back? You know, if I eat this particular thing, will I be able to do deep backbends? Oh, I did terrible backbends today. It must be the food that I put in the body. It's not like that. I mean, definitely it makes some impact, but, uh, you know, some impact within reason. We should eat, you know, a diet that's conducive to our yoga practice, but uh, we don't want to be too, you know, too granular about that. All right. So how can you answer the question, I am not my body? You have to experience something within yourself, within your being, that is beyond that. And this is the classic practice known as neti neti, which means not this, not this. No, I'm not my body. No, I'm not my thoughts. No, I'm not my emotions. Well, what am I then? You have to keep searching, searching, searching. It is said that the being that you are is called purusha, spirit. This is the truth of who we are. If we put this in more contemporary terminology, we could say that you are a being of light that has a body. Now, you are a being, a, a being in the spirit that has been given this wonderful gift of the body. Oh, such a wonderful gift. We never think of the body as a gift. Without this body, you wouldn't be here. Where would you be? We don't know, somewhere else, you know? But without this body, we can do the practice. Without this body, we wouldn't be here. All of the love that you've experienced, all of the happiness you've experienced in this life, and all of the pain, and all of the learning and growth that you've experienced from that pain is because you have this gift of the body. This is the vehicle for your journey through life. This is the vehicle you've been given. You're not going to get another one, you know? So you have choice to make. Do I want to cultivate a happy relationship and become friends with this vehicle? Or do I want to spend the time that I have hating this vehicle? You do not have the opportunity to trade it in. There is no upgrade to this body, okay? You cannot upgrade this body. You cannot change it for a newer model. Yet, at some moment, maybe, depending on what religion you believe, what you believe happens after. But for this lifetime, for this journey, whatever lesson in this particular incarnation, this is the vehicle that not only has been given to you, but that you have also chosen. Somehow, you have existed before this body. You have chosen this body by the very fact that you're in it, and you've been given it by the very fact that you've received it. You have merged into this miracle of you know, conception and made it through the birth canal, made it through up until adulthood where you are now. This is a blessing. Not everybody makes it this far. Here you are. Some lesson is here for you during the trajectory of these, you know, 50, 100 years or so that were given. You have chosen this body. Without this body, you could not learn these lessons. This includes all your injuries. This includes all your pain. This includes all of Every obstacle that you have faced within this body and all the blessings that have come with it too. 
We can spend rest of our life looking at other people's bodies. Oh, I wish I had that body, such a better body. I've done that so many times. I'm not the tall person. I've spent so many times looking at tall people. Oh, would be so nice just to be, just to have few inches from them. If they could pass them over to me, I could use those and I would apply them gratefully in my life every day. I wanted extra inches in my legs so much. So before I started doing yoga, I used to wear frighteningly high heels. You know, I stopped that because it's bad for yoga. You know, it's also ridiculous and uncomfortable to walk in. So comfort starts to be higher uh, value than um, fashion at some moment in the yogi's life. <laughs> you know, eventually, I think after it takes, you know, 20 years or so, but eventually it comes. Now, when we think about that, you can spend the whole lifetime wishing for someone else's body. But if you are in that body, then the immediate thing comes is they're there critiquing their own body, wishing maybe for your body. Everybody's, you know, situation is always like that. It's a mirror. It's a, you know, we don't know what that individual is experiencing until we're there. So if we understand this is a vehicle that has been perfectly designed with every lesson containing every valuable key that we need for the lessons of this life, the lessons of this journey, what soul lessons, what spiritual lessons, we are here to experience, including the pain, the suffering, the injury, the illness, the highs, the lows, including it all. This body has been perfectly designed for that. Then you can really learn as the being in the spirit that you are to be friends with your body. Oh, my body, you and me, we can become friends. There is no greater friend that you will ever find than your body. When you spend years hating, abusing, you know, blaming and shaming the body. What does your body do for you? It's there for you every single day, never stopping to be your friend. You put it to bed, it tries to heal itself. It tries to be there for you. You, you give it terrible fuel. It says, okay, I'll try to work with that. You starve it because you don't like the way it looks. And it says, I'm going to keep working for you. You give me one little particle of energy. I'm going to keep working for you. You cut it, you put it to bed. It fixes itself. Imagine any other vehicle equipped with such a miraculous capacity. If you have had, ever had a car that has a check engine light that comes on, imagine if instead of bringing that car down to your local car dealership and saying, I don't know, the check engine light, please fix this car. Then they keep it for some time, hand you a giant bill. And maybe you don't know, you have no idea. Is it good? You don't know. But your body a check engine light comes on the body, which you can learn to read as the language of the body. It feels tired. It feels sore. It feels overworked. You put it to bed. You wake up the next day. Ah, better. What a wonderful vehicle. Think about that. I would love to put the car to bed and just pet it. Oh, sleep. Put a blanket over it. Wake up the next day. Ah, check engine light. Finished. Wonderful. This would be so nice. You know, no, we have to go and you know, trust somebody we don't know anything about and then they fix the car. And then I've had very bad experiences with check engine lights and cars of them turning on and turning off at random times. So I very much appreciate my body's ability to sleep and restore itself. Now, the reason I'm sharing all of that with you is that when we come into the practice, we're moving from a sense of not only body foreignness, meaning being foreigners in our body, being awkward in the body, being uncomfortable in the body, but we're also meant to challenge body hatred. Many of us have had body, everybody, every, I don't know a single human being that doesn't have some body part that they look at in disgust and self-loathing with. You know, you catch a, some, some body parts of yourself. Some people have numerous body parts they don't like and they think, oh, I can't go want to wear this shirt because they think 
I don't like the way this random body part looks in the shirt. You know, you have a favorite dress that you used to wear all the time, but now you don't wear it anymore because you don't like how your body looks in it. Or, you know, I talked to so many people that say they can't wear shorts, not because they don't fit and they don't like the way their legs look. Or somebody says, I can't show my belly because there's a little bit of, you know, some kind of marks are on there or the shape of it is not good. Or you have a perfectly good day and then you see yourself in the mirror and then it's ruined the whole day, you know? So all these things come up. We all have that. This is body hatred. This is not only being foreign in the body, but having the relationship between you and your body be one of antagonism rather than one of friends. I consider it better to be a foreigner than to be an enemy. I would rather just be foreign and not know the body than to be an enemy of the body. So we have to figure out where you start the practice, where the journey from. You can have some places where you're foreign. You can be, have some places where you're antagonistic. But we're learning slowly, slowly through the journey of practice to change those stories, to become friends with the body. You have to go in through this wonderful tool of asana and become intimate with what places you are foreign, what places you are antagonistic, where you are an enemy to yourself, where you are a foreigner towards yourself, and then do the work of crossing that bridge so that you can become intimate with yourself. You can stop running away from yourself, stop running away from the body, stop lying to the body, learn to speak the language of the body. Just as we spend years and years and years learning diction, grammar, syntax, we learn how to make sentences. What is the, you know, what is the noun? What is the verb? What is the adverb? What is the predicate of the sentence? All this grammar that you've slept through in school, you know, you learn, oh, terrible grammar. My dad was an English teacher. I could not sleep through grammar. If I slept through English, I came home and I received the lesson, you know, if I ever made any grammatical mistakes, my father would, there was, I, 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 you know, it was always, always one thing or another. So I appreciate that now very, very much. I would like to introduce you to the idea that the body has a language. That language is nothing like the language of the mind. It does not follow logic, order, grammar. It follows sensation and feeling, and it is slower, slower. I find this to be frustrating. I would like it to be fast, like language. I would like to say yes or no very quickly. Hey, my body, how do you feel? I want it to say like, good. But if you check in with your body and you try to feel, you need to wait and stay there and just kind of wait and feel and learn to feel. Wait for the body to kind of learn to trust you again. And then somehow you can get an intimation, a feeling, a, a, a sensation that will arise from the feeling of the body. The body's language is sensation. The body's language is subtlety. The body's language is vibration. And it will speak to you. It is speaking to you. It has been speaking to you from the time you've been born, from the time you've been incarnate. But at some moments, we learned to stop listening. To come to the practice and to become friends with the body, what do we do in any friendship relationship? We listen. We don't only speak. We don't only demand, but we listen. Hey, my body, how are you doing? Just like a friend. Hey, my friend, you seem a little down today. How are you? And just like you'd wait for your friend to open up and tell you what was wrong, you have to wait. Let me wait. Okay, my body, I'm waiting. I don't need it to happen now. I'm just going to be nice to you until I feel like you can tell me what's wrong, what's happening, what message you have. So in this mind matter phenomenon, where this substance of spirit is interacting with this body made of matter, 
still also made of energy, but of a material substance. We also have memory. Memory is something very interesting called smirti in the Sanskrit, memory. The, it, memory is interesting because we have conscious memory. These are the memories we're aware of. So if you say, you know, what, the, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? Maybe you can remember, right? What did you have for breakfast three years ago today? I'll have no idea, right? No, no idea. Maybe some people that have photographic memory, that's good for them, but the rare individual that is. What did you have for breakfast when you were nine years old? Maybe there's a vague idea of something, some image of some weird breakfast table, you know, um, you know, some weird children's cereal starts to appear, something like this, depending on, you know, where you're from. So then you can think of this. Now, this is conscious memory. Anything you can consciously say, I remember this. There is also unconscious memory. And unconscious memory is the memory stored within the field of the body. The memory stored in the field of the body is 100% accurate and remembers everything. It is a complete imprint of everything you have experienced and even more than that, everything you have felt and everything you have thought about what you experienced. These memories aggregate around images and pictures and tell various stories. When you have a lot of experiences that are similar, these are aggregate experiences that come together and form larger patterns. These are called in Sanskrit the vasanas or the collection of our experiences, the collection of our, um, the, you know, the collection of the, the residue of experiences, a collection of samskaras comes together to form these larger aggregate patterns. These larger aggregate patterns are like perfect memory image pictures, thoughts, emotions, pictures that tell a story, that hold a thought, a vibration. Those are stored in the body. We're not conscious of them. But these are powerful and real, and we store them if we have experienced trauma in our lives, and every one of us has on one form or another. There is a picture, memory, image filled with thought, vibration, and energy around that, stored somewhere within the realm of the body. And part of the reason that we're either foreign or antagonistic towards our body is that we're not at peace with that image. We haven't made peace with that image. And our very antagonism towards that image, that memory is holding it within our system. We come into the practice. I'll share with you a story that a student shared with me practicing. We don't necessarily have this one-to-one relationships. It's not going to be the same for everyone. But there was a student that was practicing with me, practicing Ashtanga maybe for a year and uh, asked to speak to me after class one day. And she had just uh, completed the primary series and was working primary series. She spoke to me after practice and said, I don't really know what happened, but today, while I was in Bhattakonasana, everybody know Bhattakonasana, this hip opening posture where the feet are together near the pubic bone. And she said, today, as I was in Bhattakonasana, I started to have all of these strange images arise that included memories of very, very young trauma that I never had a memory of before. Was this real? Did this happen to me? Or am I just imagining this during the asana? I have no memory of this up until now. And I said to her, it's, I'm not a qualified professional to guide you through this, but it is coming up in the practice. It means that there's something there for you. So I advise you to seek you know, a qualified professional to guide you through and unpack these memories. A year later, she came back and said, you know, I went to see the therapist and worked through all of these more and more and more memories arose. And I had you know, early, she said to me that she had early childhood sexual trauma that she'd never experienced before. She completely repressed the memory. 
And yet in her life, she had been in an antagonistic relationship with you know, her family, an antagonistic relationship with other people that reminded her of this individual, but she never knew why. Through the practice, these memories arose, this picture memory image arose in the field of her mind when she was ready to see it, ready to move through it. Incredible, if we think about that, until we're ready to face all of those stored vasanas, those stored memory, emotion pictures built up around the knots that we have experienced in this lifetime or in the past, to that degree that we have our energy stuck in those repetitive patterns, to that degree we're not free. To that degree, we're caught in loops of trauma, suffering, pain. What is liberation? To be free, free from all of that so that we're embodied without any restriction, that we're, we're broken out of loops of trauma, loops of suffering, whether we're doing that for ourselves individually, whether we're, doing, whether we're breaking that loop collectively or communally for a group of individuals, that this is what the promise of the practice represents. Being at home in your own skin, means being comfortable with all the light and all the shadow so that the being that you are is not in an antagonistic relationship with anything you've experienced, with anything that's been, you know, within your system, that level of peace. Wow. I'm not there yet, but I believe it's possible to get closer and closer and closer. We have only a few examples of true saintly beings in the history of human, you know, humanity. If we can go more and more in that direction of ourselves individually, we can collectively evolve humanity. I believe that there's so much suffering in the planet now because so many people are uncomfortable in their skin because they're so miserable. They create more and more misery. They can't do anything but create misery because the very frequency and vibration that they are, the dominant energy is misery, pain, suffering. How can we move beyond that? Not by running away from it, not by escaping it, but by learning to be okay with it, by learning to hold it, to embrace it, to embrace the light and the shadow. You don't want to go into the other side and engage in you know, the, the, the perversion of the spiritual path into what's called a spiritual bypass. When we use the notion of you know, uh, connecting in and wholeness to avoid the shadow side. What wholeness is, is the light and the shadow. You know, if we only want to see one side of the moon, then this, doesn't, this means we'll never experience the whole moon. We have the dark side of the moon and the light side of the moon. One is not better than the other, but we're there to experience them both with the dark and the light come together, give us the experience of all the different phases of the moon. This allows us to experience the wholeness of any period, any cycle within ourselves, within our life. So understand that this is the notion of the journey of asana, to be friends between you and your body, to have this field of what's called kaya, the field of the body, to have this liberated from all of the chains and restrictions of the past so we can be free in the present. So if we have any questions, you're welcome to type those into the chat. And I thank you for listening to me and sharing the practice in the meanwhile. So I'll take a little sip of water and give you a chance if uh, you would like to type anything. Yeah, thank you. I very much appreciate it. Okay, Stephanie is having a question about forward bends. Stephanie, do you want to type it or do you want to just say it? I could, maybe can find you and unmute you. No, she's writing. It's faster. Okay, this is an interesting question. So Stephanie says, sometimes if I hold the forward bend for too long, my feet go to sleep. So I would imagine that probably everybody has experienced some body part falling asleep. 
during practice. If not during practice, then randomly during the life. But uh, this happens, your feet can fall asleep in forward bends, your feet can fall asleep in a long hold of headstand, your feet can fall asleep in a long hold of shoulder stand, your feet can even fall asleep. Sometimes you hold a back bend for too long, but normally we don't hold back bend for too long. Nobody likes to hold back bend for too long, but even it can happen there. This is not bad. There are numerous reasons why this might happen. First of all, you're upside down, blood is flowing away from the feet. This is normal that the feet fall asleep after some time. If you hold any position for a period of time, not only forward bend, any position, various parts of the body will fall asleep. This is okay, it's not a problem. When we move again, the blood in circulation returns, those body parts will start to uh, get the blood in circulation that they need. But in the interim, when the muscles are a little bit squeezed, sometimes they squeeze on the nerves as well. So when you're doing a forward bend, if you're squeezing on the nerves that travel down to the legs, to the feet, they're gonna eat more easily fall asleep. That squeezing is not bad. When the muscle tissues have laid in the body, have been, you know, been sort of layered as we're growing and aging, you know, sometimes the nerves can get caught in an uncomfortable or less than ideal position in the fibers of the nerves. So there can be a period of time where you will feel like your extremities fall asleep after or during a posture, whether forward bend, sometimes fingers and back bending as well. Then that should last for some period of time and then change. The muscle will loosen, the nerve will kind of find a new pathway that's more efficient, and then that falling asleep situation will lessen. Then if you hold the posture a little deeper and long again, it's going to come back. And it's just the, the situation of the natural function of the body. It's not a problem. Again, as long as the blood and circulation comes back after the feeling of falling asleep comes back after, it's nothing to worry about. Okay, I saw a lot of other questions. So Katsyarna, I hope I said your name correctly. Uh, says, has asked the question, could you tell us a little bit about your typical day and how you stay positive with all of this going on? Well, this is something that I think is very challenging. You know, it's hard to stay positive with everything that's going on. It's generally hard to, even, even now we can blame coronavirus. Oh, I blame coronavirus. I'm miserable. But if you look back, were you really not miserable before? You know, so this is an interesting thing that anytime you're stuck at home and you have no distractions, you become, your thoughts and feelings become magnified. Oh, I want to go back to how it was before. Yes, we have a, you know, a nostalgia for how things were before, but before, what were we doing? We were complaining about other things. It's not like, oh, I was in the enlightenment before coronavirus. Now coronavirus came. I'm going to blame coronavirus and everything for my misery. Oh no, certainly misery has increased now, but there is, there is this idea to easily romanticize the past. No, before, what were we complaining? Oh, this latte is not to my liking. They used the uh, bad oat milk. You got oat milk. I mean, this is incredible. First of all, how did anybody ever think of making milk from oats? Now you get milk from oats. You used to make only porridge from oats. Now there's milk that comes from oats. You know, the cows are looking at that going like, hey, good job, you know? And then you're standing in line. Oh, this is a bad oat milk, you know? Oh, the coffee was burnt, you know, this toast was burnt. Oh, the, the line is too long in the airport, you know. Oh, you know, this is, shirt is too expensive, you know, or all these different things, you know. Oh, there's not enough selection at the supermarket. Oh, and a million things to complain about, you know. It's like, the, it's like the weather. We wish for it to be sunny. Oh, please let the sun come out. The sun comes out. Oh, it's too hot. Make the sun go away. The sun goes away and it's raining. Ah, oh, I can't stand the rain. Then it's so dry for a period of time. Oh, please let it rain. Ah, too much rain. Ah, you know, if there is a being on the other side that's controlling everything, 
and looking at you going, I can never make you happy. You'll pray for sun. I give you sun. Then you pray for rain. I give you rain. Then you say, rain, go away. I make the rain go away. Then you're mad that the rain, never happy. You know, okay, it's trying again. I give you this, not happy. I give you this, also not happy. What do you want? You want the button to control. Well, now we control the, our you know, home air conditioning system. Still, we can't get it right. Too cold, too hot all the time. What I'm trying to say is that it is hard to control the mind. This hardness, difficulty to control the mind existed before coronavirus is magnified now. So what I can recommend is to constantly begin, if you don't have the habit of working with your mind, you are the one that is responsible for your own emotional well-being. So what does that mean? This means that moment by moment, you got to watch how you're reacting to things. Don't believe your thoughts, your reaction to something, your emotion. That's just a pattern based in those stored pictures that are coming up through the unconscious manifesting as a conscious thought. Here's, uh, uh, you know, you have a choice and you can change the way you think about something. If that thought is not making you happy, change it. Literally put in the work to change it moment by moment. You know, you could think someone you can be in a situation and be annoyed at someone else, or you can be in that situation and try to change your perspective. You can forgive that person. You can forgive yourself. You can breathe, relax. You can reframe it, or you can choose to hate the world. It's, it is actually a choice moment by moment. You can choose. So I do this with myself. This is something I have as kind of a daily discipline. There are a couple of things that I do moment by moment. If I notice I'm complaining about something, I pause and see if I can employ the quests to turn the thought around. So I'm complaining about something. Oh, is there, can I, you know, sometimes you let yourself complain. It feels good for a moment, vent. I'm not saying never do that. But if you notice, okay, I'm about, you're having a super bad day, then pause, take a breath. See if you can change your thought around. As a self, emotional self-care tool, I think this is extremely useful, even if it feels insincere, to practice gratitude and compliments. If you haven't complimented yourself once a day, if you haven't said to yourself, hey self, that was something good you did, at least once a day, you're not putting in the work of emotional self-care. If you haven't said one thing that you're grateful for every day, you're not putting in the work of emotional self-care. If you don't do that, it's really simple. Wake up in the morning and make yourself a, a program. I'm going to say one thing I'm thankful for when I you know, wake up in the morning. You can't sleep at night. Most people, they can't sleep at night because they're sitting there thinking of all the things that are wrong in the world. And oh my God, catastrophizing about what's going to happen in three months and what action could I take to end the catastrophe that might happen three months from now when I might lose my job and possibly go bankrupt and get coronavirus. And we're like, okay, is it happened now? No, you're lying in bed going like, well, when that does happen, I'm going to, don't do that. Lie in bed and think, what is one thing I love about myself? Lie in bed and think, what was one thing that was wonderful about today? Oh, it was so wonderful. If nothing was wonderful about the day, lie in the bed at night and think, what is one thing that could be wonderful about tomorrow? What is one thing that could be wonderful about myself tomorrow? What is one thing that's wonderful about now? Whatever that is. If you hate rain and it's raining, think this, the plants are happy. Definitely the plants are happy. If you hate rain, oh, plants are happy. Then you think, oh no, the cactus is not happy. Okay, you can do that also. Definitely cactus doesn't like too much rain, but even the cactus needs little rain. Okay. And if it's dry, you can think, well, the cactus is happy now. <laughs> okay. So in other words, it's a slow, tedious thought and it feels insincere, but you have to do this moment by moment. This is what I do as emotional self-care. If I don't do this, all those old emotional, mental images take over and can run the, run the stories of depression, run the stories of self-loathing, 
run the stories of, you know, low self-esteem and, and self-hate that can come up so easily. So I do this as a practice and it's a slow, steady practice. Sooner or later, probably more like later, you're going to have so much momentum going towards gratitude, compliments, positivity, that that will be the dominant theme. When that happens, there's a change. But until then, it will feel insincere. It will feel like you have a huge hole somewhere inside of yourself and you drop a, you know, you drop a small drop. What you're doing with that first drop, and this is why it feels insincere, is before you can receive, before you can receive those compliments, before you conceive that thankfulness, that wonderfulness, you have to build what I like to call the architecture of self-esteem. If you don't have the architecture of self-esteem, then when people say thank you to you, when you try to give yourself a compliment, it just goes nowhere. So understand that if it feels like it's going nowhere, you're building the architecture. And then once that architecture is set up, then you start filling things in like a good builder. Okay. So let's answer the next question. How do you handle the harsh things other people say about you publicly on Instagram? It's one thing not to feel comfortable in our own skin, but I don't understand how people criticize you on a personal level. Well, I hear you. It's annoying. Um, what can I say? You know, I think that if you make the, the, the online world is dangerous, I feel like. There are a couple of things that you can think about. Number one, if you want to share anything out in the online world, you have to ask yourself what you're doing this for. Am I doing this to try to get people to say, that was awesome. If you are, I would recommend don't share because you're going to be in for a big surprise. That thing which you think that this is really going to win me a lot of praise is probably the thing that's going to, people are going to pick apart and not really connect with. If you're sharing because you genuinely want to share, because you genuinely think, I'm not doing this to get your approval, I think this is going to be a benefit to you, or you're sharing it just because you want to share your journey, great. Then this is a useful thing to share. Then you're in your, in your own integrity. You're not there trying to get approval. You're not there trying to you know, uh, win you know, the praise of someone else. This is important. Second, it's also... It took me a long time to build up a thick enough skin to really realize that to a large degree, what people say is often about themselves and less about me. However, I don't brush everything off because sometimes somebody says something that's quote unquote negative, but it's important for me to hear that negative feedback. Sometimes the negative feedback, the quote unquote negative feedback is so important to let in because if we're like, I only want to surround myself with a bubble of positivity. Ooh, that was a negative comment to lead. Like I'm going to block you because you're, then you end up in a spiritual bubble, like this fake spiritual bubble. However, there is a difference between comments that are said to hurt you versus comments that are pointing out constructive negative feedback. And I really believe in being open to constructive negative feedback. Even if it's not coming in in exactly the tone that you would like, you don't necessarily want to police the tone or manage the tone when people are pointing out things to you that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. So that's very important to think about. What is it that you're reacting to if you label something as negative? If someone's pointing out something to you that you didn't realize and it's making you uncomfortable because you feel ashamed that you didn't realize that, then that's something else. But if someone's just, let me give you an example. Like someone left me a comment recently on YouTube that just said, I just hate your voice so much. And I was like, please don't listen to my class. You know, <laughs> that's not going to bother me. I'm like, okay, you know what you can do, buddy? You don't have to listen. Why are you watching my video if you hate my voice? 
you know, just turn it off. But this problem, this person, if it's on YouTube, is probably watching my video because they like my feet. So if they're, you know, and so if you haven't seen my YouTube channel, my YouTube channel has a very, I, I can't figure out if there's majority of people are there practicing yoga, if the majority of their people are watching my feet. It's very disturbing. I would like the majority of people in my YouTube channel to be practicing yoga. I don't mind if the people also watch the foot, but they should also practice yoga. That is my one request from all of these foot people. So then uh, if we think about that, I don't like your voice. Oh, fine. I, I don't care. You don't like my voice. Oh, and the people leave comments. Oh, I liked your hair better before. Good for you. Uh, this, whatever, you know, you just have to brush it off. I'm not, my hair is not for you. I'm doing my hair for me. That's it. Also, I'm not doing anything with my hair. I am at peace with that. If you're at peace with it, people can say whatever. Oh, you have a giant zit. Oh, thank you. Me and my zit were friends, you know? Always lovely when people point out, oh, you look really tired. Oh, yes, I'm tired today. As you're at peace with it, completely fine. But if someone points out something that you didn't realize and you feel a little bit like, oh, pause. This is what I do for my pause. Reflect on it. See if it is a valid concern that I need to take a look at. See if I'm being judgmental, if I'm being negative, if there's something out of alignment with myself. If there is, I'll willingly apologize, put in the work to educate myself more and you know, take responsibility for places I don't know and let it grow. And this is a wonderful way that you can learn, you know, constructive to use quote unquote negative feedback as constructive con in a constructive way. I'm not interested, however, in creating any harsh lines in the world saying, oh, you don't have a right to say, you know, I, I feel like I don't want more war. I've been at war with myself in the past and I don't want more war. I want everybody, no matter what, where you come from or what your feelings are about this or that, I want everybody to come into the yoga practice and become at peace with themselves. I believe the more we're at peace with ourselves, the more we have more space to be at peace with others. So I really try to, anytime I'm interacting with someone, to lead them on that path. Oh, what are you saying? What is it? Because, what's that about for you? Do you have something you need to express? Is it about me? Is it about you? How can we meet on this journey of being at peace with ourselves? But it is difficult, extremely, extremely difficult to think about the you know, how to interact with so many different thoughts, so many different, uh, you know, feelings, thoughts, strong opinions this way, strong opinions that way. Extreme, it's extremely difficult to think about. There's a book called Finding Freedom by Jarvis Masters. It's a really, really wonderful book. Uh, he found the teaching of Buddhism while on death row in San Quentin in the United States, a really tough prison. And he writes about his experiences. And there's this one book that he, one chapter in the book called Angry Faces. And he was allowed to have a TV in his cell room. And so he had the TV turned on. He was writing and reading and studying. And then he used the TV for the lights. And he looked up and it was on mute. And then he looked up and he saw these people like, ah. And then he said to everyone, hey, hey guys, uh, what's happening? Everybody's yelling. Oh, it's the US Senate. Oh. Wow. Wonderful. Okay. He went back reading, 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 reading. And then, and then he looked up again and he saw, yeah, more people like yelling, yelling, yelling. So what's going on here? Oh, this is Greenpeace. They're protesting against some nuclear power plant. Oh, okay. Go down. Reading, reading, reading. He looks back up and again, more people yelling, yelling. And what's happening here? Oh, it's a church. Oh, it's a church. Oh my goodness. Oh, they're, they're yelling about what's wrong with society and this. Okay. And then he looked up and he said, look, I don't know anything about this, but all I see is angry faces. It's the same angry faces. Everybody miserable, 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 miserable. 
And uh, what an insightful, you, you, you know, um, reading of the anger and the, the you know, the, ang- the, the, the fuel that drives so much of uh, society. So, and also interesting perspective. I really recommend his book, this uh, Finding Freedom. If you could find, find the freedom and wisdom in a, in a truly, truly horrible situation, it could be a real inspiration for so many of us. Now it's starting to rain here. So the plants are happy. So could you talk a little bit about your Ashtanga training? I would love to gain a good idea on the length of time with primary series and when to move on to the intermediate series. Well, I have been practicing Ashtanga yoga for more than 20 years and it's different for every student. The flexible students can probably work through primary series in a year, but primary series, some students can practice whole lifetime, never go to intermediate series. So you never know. You want to really think about your own body and not worry about the other series. Oh, when do I get to this series? Eh, doesn't matter. When do I get to this level? It doesn't matter. You know, what can I do with this practice, with this body, where I am today to go on my spiritual path? And that's all we need to think about, you know? However, what is that? That is training of the mind. So now you're training the mind to be patient. Oh, what can you do? Then again, you're there in the night worrying what I'm going to do three months from now when catastrophe hits. Oh, that's me worrying about second series. So instead of that, I'm just going to be with where I am now. This is how practice trains you to train your mind in life also. So the, you have to go through that. So if, don't feel bad if you feel like I want the next pose, but that's something to work through. I'm working with that. I'm working with that. So give yourself time. My, my experience in Ashtanga will be different than your experience. And then we, if we start to compare, then we start to feel badly about ourselves. I started uh, my very first yoga class when I was 19 years old. I did my first Ashtanga class when I was 22 years old. I had no prior experience in anything physical. I just threw myself into the practice with all my heart and all my soul. When I've been practicing for less than a year, I went to India and started practicing there. I continue to go to India every year. I had the great benefit of living with my parents when I didn't have to go back to India. So I saved a lot of money not paying rent and practicing in their garage was really, really a blessing. Allowed me to save money and go back to India for six months. And I just lived like that for some time. So I feel like I made really fast progress in the the practice of yoga because I was able to spend this time in India. Not everybody can do that. It's okay. So we just have to figure out where are we in our life? Where are we in our body? And learn to appreciate that. The next question is from Sandra. She says, what do you recommend to a student if they have an emotional reaction in a pose? I've had some strong reactions during backbends, kapotasanas, great learning moments, but also overwhelming. If you have a strong emotional reaction in an asana, my advice to you is to sit with it, experience it, from the perspective of embodiment and less from the perspective of the analytical mind. Close your eyes, feel what you feel. If there are images, let them be images, but don't start to divide and dissect the images. Oh, this is because that, don't don't analyze. Just pure experience, feeling, sensation, burning sensation in this part of the body, vibration, shaky sensation. It feels like the heart's gonna break. It feels like I can't breathe. You can close the eyes and just describe, describe, describe. Sit with what you feel. Oh, it's changing. Now it's here. Tension in the neck, tension in the throat. I feel like someone's strangling me. I feel like I can't breathe. Oh, I can breathe again. Walls are closing in. Walls are open. Whatever it is, just go through it as a lived experience. If you have to come out of the posture, go to child's pose and roll through that, do that. Treat it as a meditation and embodiment and let it take however long it takes. It's a wonderful tool to sit with discomfort because whatever you're experiencing as a strong reaction to the yoga pose, you're going to experience off the mat in your life. That's going to come up again. 
And if you get intimate with it during your yoga practice, then when you're instant, then when you experience it in your life, you have less likelihood of running away, turning to escapism, turning to, you know, all the normal methods that we tune out with. So this is intense. We can understand, wow, this is some intense stuff that yoga is asking us to do. Super intense. We are literally evolving as we practice yoga. And it is not easy work. We're trying to become like a diamond. How does a diamond become like a diamond? Not at the jeweler. The diamond arrives already at the jeweler ready. It's compressed, you know, by pressure and weight over a long time. So we compress ourselves. We put weight into the energy system that we are through the body so that we can begin to become like a diamond. Very valuable we are, okay? So now there seems to be a question about the lotus position. How can you explain how I can improve Padmasana? And also, can we have too much movement in the knee? In lotus, I don't feel the knee pain, but my leg feels awkward after walking. So be sure that... You don't push the knee too far to move when we're moving in and out of lotus position. We want to always localize that within the hip joints. If you're feeling instability in the knees, then this might mean that the knee is a little bit too much open when you're trying to get in and out of lotus. If that persists, the, the movement, if this is for Justine, if that persists with the movement in the knee, you would want to look at strengthening your quadriceps a little more. So make sure the kneecap is lifted. I'm sorry to say this, but longer hold in Navasana, longer hold in any inversions can really help strengthen the quadriceps to make sure that that's tracking really, really well. Longer hold in Utkatasana and in the warrior poses can help make sure that the knee is tracking really, really well. For improvement of Padmasana, we have to be patient and focus on external rotation of the hip joints. So Marina asks, I am a former athlete and used to pushing myself through some pain for strength, but I'm learning about flexibility is not about pushing. Is it about waiting? There's always both with strength and with flexibility. There's a little bit of a kind of compromise that you have to make with the body. You have to push a little bit. Okay. I'm going to test it out. Stretching, 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 stretching. Ooh, too much. Same thing with strength. You can push, push with strength and then too much. Then you have like weird injury in the body, some muscle that doesn't feel good. So we want to think about that we're working a balance between engaging, working, and then pulling back and waiting. The attitude of flexibility is very much about creating the space and allowing what wants to happen to happen. At the same time, you definitely want to do something where you actively stretch. Like you can't not stretch. You have to stretch in the same way. You have to move the body a little bit, but you can't pull and force it to happen like in one go. So I would say, yes, a little bit about waiting, but also a little bit about pushing. So we find this balance between activation and release. We find this balance between. Good. So everyone, thank you so much for this time. It's been really, really wonderful to share this with you. I hope that uh, you felt a little bit of insight from the talk that we shared together. And uh, my teacher, Sharaji, is teaching next Saturday. I look forward to seeing you in class and we'll practice together as students. Uh, two weeks from now, I'm supposed to go to Kansas City to teach in person. If that still happens, I'm looking very much forward to that. So that two weeks from now, Tim is going to be teaching the primary series on Saturday, which will be a new experience. Uh, he hasn't done one of those. So I hope to join for his class as well. And I will uh, let you know when I'm available again on the Saturday. And I hope to see you in practice and that you keep practicing.
So thanks everyone. Let's end with one Om to bring your hands together. Thanks so much, everyone. Namaste. Lots of love. See you next time. Bye. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.